Welcome to Sugar Nutmeg. This is Alexandra. And this is Ruth. In this episode, we head to the most dangerous part of the world for activists. We talk to Mitzi Jonaltan, who chairs the Youth Advocates for Climate Action in the Philippines, to discuss the political turbulence and environmental typhoons in the Philippines. Many publications, including Vogue UK, refer to Mitzi Tan as a climate justice activist, but her expertise expands beyond environmental issues to the history, economics, and socio-cultural issues of the Philippines. As the older generation has failed to address the problems of global warming, as well as ethical and political issues around the world, since 2017, youth throughout the globe have come together in solidarity, marching louder than ever for climate justice. There's a lot of global attention on the current Duterte administration, particularly his anti-terror bill and his war on drugs. But is this administration really different from the previous ones? Will future administrations be different from this one? If you're curious, let's feast and find out. There's been a lot of attention worldwide about the new anti-terror bill that got implemented, I believe, like just several months ago, right? And so that was put in place, they said, to combat terrorism, but it actually affects a lot of activists. So how does that affect you as a climate justice activist um, as well as other activists in the Philippines? And I hear that it's not just like, it's not just Filipinos in the Philippines, but also Filipinos abroad, right? Which like, that's very hard to like truly implement that, I feel. Yeah, um, so one of the like, most problematic things about the anti-terror law of 2020s is how it has this overbroad, vague definition of terrorism to the point that um, calling for system change is can be considered as terrorism. Um, having the intention of doing terrorist acts, which again is very big, even just the intention can be classified as terrorism. And, and the intention and the people who get to tell you if you're doing this or not is this council that has historically always like terror tagged activists in the past. And so if you are looking at the law itself, like people have asked me when I'm reading the law, it doesn't look that bad. It looks like, you know, something that a lot of other Asian countries have, you know, first there's the question of why do the other Asian countries have them too? But the second question is like, that's true, but it's lacking a lot of nuance, a lot of context where if you see, The Philippines is already like the second most dangerous country in the world for environmental defenders and activists. And that's just the environmental defenders part. Um, like activism is dangerous here because you're always tagged as a terrorist because you're tagged as a communist. It's usually tied to that. Like if you are an activist, you are a communist, which means you are a terrorist. And that's why the terror law is so scary because it made it even easier to call people terrorists and to do things like Um, you can be under surveillance for up to 90 days without them knowing, without you knowing, rather. Um, you can be detained without a warrant. Um, and you can, there, there was another thing that was particularly problematic about it. And the thing you said about being, um, it affecting even Filipinos abroad, it, it's the thing where 
if they say that you're a terrorist, then you won't be able to come back here in the Philippines. You can be blacklisted. Mm. Um, mm. So and, they, and they can't really, capture yeah. you abroad, right? Like they can't, um, what do you call that? Like extradite you? Right. No, 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 no. Um, because there is a law against that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you won't be able to come back here, which is also a bad thing. Like the, the, mostly what's so bad about the anti-terror law is who gets to decide what terrorism is when what's in the law is so vague and it's so weird because like it, it was during the peak of the pandemic and we were saying that lawyers are our frontliners supposed to be doctors in the middle of the health pandemic you should be focusing on the coronavirus pandemic instead our president directly said that the biggest threat to the filipinos right now in the middle of the health pandemic are the communists are the terrorists and and it doesn't make sense and coming up actually this is really timing although i'm not sure when this this is coming out but on february 2 um a lot of petitions that were brought to our supreme court is gonna go into court so they're putting all the petitions together and the lawyers are all gonna go in there and like really fight for us so Mm -hmm. we're there's gonna be a big protest around that we're gonna we're hoping that you know the terror law does get repealed How's the people in Philippines perceive communism in general? So, I mean, like, why this scenario is so popular? Why is it, like, tied to communism? Um, So, in the Philippines, there has been a civil war going on for some time. The Communist Party here is pretty strong. Um, Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Apparently, um, and but is there any difference between the the hook and the what do you call it the communist new people's army group? They're like different the, in terms of that's that's actually really funny because we learned about the hook balahap, which are the communist rebel groups that defended us against the Japanese um, colonizers. Mm-hmm. But if we learned about that in school, but they didn't tell us that it was the Communist Party of the Philippines that set that up. Um, because communism is so terrorized here, maybe it's because of how we were colonized by the U.S. And you know how bad the Red Scare is in the U.S. Yeah. And maybe it's because the Communist Party is so strong here. And so the government feels so threatened by it. Um, so that's why they really double down on, on the Communist Party and, and any activist that may, may or may not be related to the Communist Party, mm-hmm. but any activist that fights for human rights or, or rights in general. Um, and yes, the Hukbalhap and the New People's Army are connected to each other. They, as far as I know, like the New People's Army reconnected with the Hukbalhap. Like there was a time when there was nothing happening. And then the founder like tried to reconnect to the old people. And then they kind of like help each other out to set it up and stuff. So it's really cool to see how the, the guerrilla fighters have been part of our history for such a long time, protecting us from... Um, you know, imperialist countries, and and we're seeing now how they are helping a lot of our farmers in the rural areas, and fishing communities, and urban poor communities in the rural areas. And so we kind of wonder, like, are they really a threat to us when so many people in the provinces support them? Mm-hmm. I've been seeing news that mostly back in the days, those people who joined the the communist parties are indigenous people, and now they've been recruited by the military. Um, like the military of, of the Philippines? The national military. From what I know, like a lot of indigenous peoples really support the like the other government, the the, the red government. Um but there are like indigenous peoples who are, you know, 
also working with the government and there are indigenous peoples who are um i feel like it's not it, there's some new ones to that it's not just indigenous people it's also like you know there's also a yeah. class um there are some indigenous people who are better off who have their own land who have um right. big businesses and and that's something that and if they're also exploiting other people then other indigenous peoples then there will be some clashing there with with right, right, the groups. Right. Right. Yeah. It's so interesting, I guess, just to know that the Communist Party in the Philippines has had a um, like a stronghold because thinking about how much U.S. has influenced the Philippines, um, the U.S. presence and the U.S. Uh, uh, influence in the Philippines over decades and I don't know, like centuries, I guess, um, I would think that they, you mean in comparison to what happened in Indonesia with the communist? Massacre? Yeah, like I, I guess like you would think that they they would have found a way to like you know like completely got gotten Watch rid of them. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the way they did in so many other countries uh, towards like just anyone who was left leaning. Um, that's interesting. Actually, I don't know why. I guess that's why I'm you know intrigued by them because like. They must be doing something, right? If they're still yeah. here, like after fifty years, like one of their slogans is in Filipinas, "Di matalo talo," which is like we cannot be defeated. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like it, a lot of it stems from how rooted they are in the people, and like how so they have like a lot of supporters um, outside the city, and and maybe because they're really like people really see how they are helping. Um, the people on the ground, like the people, like our farmers in our fishing communities. Um, maybe, I don't know. I, this is really all just speculation. But yeah, I definitely think that the U.S. Um, government, the U.S. military has tried to do a lot, not just to squash like the Communist Party here, but activism in general. Um, there was this thing where we had a dictator around 20 years ago. and. Um, Mar- there's actually a record yeah Marcos him there's actually a recording somewhere that someone from the CIA said to the military in the Philippines okay let him go let the people um because we had a massive protest and they were like okay um it's too much pull out you have to let him go and then that then the military completely like left their support of Marcos it's so crazy that you really see like there's actual proof that the U.S. military has control over our military yeah, yeah. Before this, uh, we talked to um, Vincent Beffens. He's like a writer. He wrote a book called The Jakarta Method. And he also talked about the CIA uh, missions in Southeast Asia and for us, uh, yeah, Latin American countries. I mean, for us Indonesians, it's a surprise because we barely talked about Communist Party anymore. And I mean, it's, it's never been It's a very taboo. In a way, it's like almost illegal now at this point. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. that's exactly like the same thing that a lot of people in the cities um, feel like. And, and like, when I say that there's support, I just mean that in the rural areas, in the cities, it's a very different situation. Um, I know this because I have spent some time with farmers and I've, I've talked to them. I've asked them about it and they're like, the difference of the answers is really big. Like if you talk to other students in the university, um, some of them will say that, oh, these people are terrorists. These people are 
you know, doing stuff against our country. And then I just, I don't know, the difference is really big with when you're talking to people from rural areas who actually get to be with them and with the people here who's so exposed to like government media. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's actually, I wanted to ask about, about that dynamic between um, the people, like, I, I guess, like the elites from the city who sort of like control the economy, I guess, um, versus the people in the rural areas whose lands are being affected. Because like the current administration, like Duterte, there's, there's been, um, he's very like, for foreign investments in the <laughs> Philippines, right? Um, and so, like, how has that, you know, you having spent time in, like, the rural areas, how, what have you observed? Um, well, you can really see how a lot of the foreign invested projects are really bad for the people in the rural areas, and not just the people in the rural areas, but, like, the Philippines in general. Um, an example is we have a reclamation project that will cover up 2,700 hectares of ocean. Um, so it's bad for the climate crisis because it's ruining our corals, which are important. It's, it's cutting down mangroves. Um, it's displacing fisher folk. And this is funded by, one of the people funding this is, is the Standard Bank, Standard Chartered Bank from the UK. Um, and, and what the company they're funding, San Miguel Corporation, is also one of like the biggest owners of coal fossil fuel, um, the coal-powered plants here in the Philippines. Um, you also see like a lot of our mining corporations, which are really, really destroying our forests, making us more vulnerable to the typhoons that are happening. A lot of them is funded by Canada, the U.S., and Japan, I think. Um, so really, oh, and then we have casinos being put up in um, Chinese casinos being put up, Chinese dams being put up. Um, even if there's so much pushback from the people on the ground and even people from the city, because they see that these projects are not only impacting people's livelihoods, but also the environment and our safety, especially as a country that's so um, vulnerable to typhoons and to the climate yeah. crisis. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about the Nueva Saya is that he's a how do you mm. see it? and the Oceana yeah. Gold Company. For those who don't know, okay. So, um, Oceana Gold is a Australian Canadian company. So they were one of the first mining companies to have a financial and technical assistance agreement, which is like a ten-year form for mining projects. So, like. Your FDAA will tell you that once it expires, you have to put stuff on pause and then you have to apply for another one. Mm-hmm. Their FDAA expired. It hasn't been renewed, but they're pushing to continue their um, operations. And what's so dangerous about this, since they're the first FDAA to expire, it's setting a precedent to all the other FDAAs that even if it's expired, it's okay to keep going while you're renewing it, when you're not even sure if it will be renewed because it's supposed to go through an approval and um, non-approval process. So it's basically just continuing to destroy the environment, even though it's already saying that your your time is up. Mm. And the pushback of the people there is so beautiful. I I was supposed to go there, but I I don't know what happened. I think coronavirus happened. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, you know, so many missed opportunities. Anyway, 
Um, and, and the people's pushback there has been so beautiful. They were able to stop the mining operations for like six to nine months, I think, through a people's barricade. And it's so cool because the church sector came in, the farmers came in, the local government came in because the local government saw that, hey, this is bad for us. This yeah. is bad for the people living here. Um, even they were affected. And it's so beautiful how people really came together, um, not just from the Philippines, but we also had people in Australia striking outside the Oceana Gold office like once a month or something in, in solidarity. And it's really difficult though, because when the coronavirus happened, so now you have to socially distance when you barricade and that's not exactly how barricades look like, right? Yeah. So it's so much easier to, to, to like, physically disperse them and so there has been a lot of fascism there like there has been a lot of um police violence they're trying to um to disperse the the barricades and the barricade has gotten a lot weaker since the coronavirus pandemic happened and the lockdowns happened there have been less people and so oceana gold has continued their um, um operations despite the massive pushback not just from the people here but across the world right mm. what makes it different with the kuma tribal groups of minandano they're also facing like a displacement and legalized land disposition right i mean there's so That's many the thing, like, other tribal groups i mean what makes it is what makes people come together for like this one the, for the oceanical one i yeah. feel like it's because there are people who are come like there are organizers, like there are organizations that are actively organizing, like actively going to people and explaining to them the importance of a barricade. Because on one hand, you you can see how a mining company in your city could provide jobs, right? So there will be people who support it. But then um, a few people came together and they realized that, hey, this isn't doing good for us. We have to start telling other people about it. And so I feel like that's one really big thing that the Oceana Gold case and the Vizcaya movement did. They came together and they reached out to people outside their province and they reached out to people in the in Manila, in the Philip in the city center, and the people in Manila reached out to people in Australia and it just became this global network of solidarity. And I feel like that's what we need to do with all the destructive projects, really to connect with one another and to unite and to explain to people how like not us from the city explaining to them how it works but like people who are there who understand what's happening and who see what's happening need to explain to other people um what they're seeing and that they need to defend their rights it sounds a lot like um what's happening in papua because recently we also did an episode with a Papuan and basically like the Indonesian government is building all of these what they call um, infrastructure and things like that but then like the people aren't actually benefiting from these dams and mm. bridges and mm. roads because previously they would just have to walk like not too far to to get food and fish but then because of all these bridges and dams and roads and stuff then they have to like trek so far just to get like basic food um so when we talked to our our guest from papua he he talked about how there are different ways of activism like one activism is trying to to bring attention to the issue of what mm. is happening and then another one is focusing on educating the youth mm. 
um, with tangible skills so that they can make lifestyle changes that will like spread into like a bigger societal change. So in the Philippines, what do you think is is more important? I feel like with the problems that we're facing, like not just in the Philippines, but like across the world, every type of activism is important and needs to be done. Um, and there will be people who focus more on certain things. Like I personally focus more on organizing and raising awareness um, and mobilizing like collectively. There will be people who will focus more on raising awareness and empowering people to do um, individual change and, and lifestyle actions. And those are both important and they need to be done together. I personally really don't like it when people like pit individual change and collective action against each other because they are like basically two sides of the same point and you need to do both um, in order to do anything. Um, it's so true. I agree with, with what your other guests said, where you need to empower people and really educate people. Um, especially in countries like the Philippines where education is not accessible. Like it's got, it has gotten a little bit more accessible um, because of the student movement here, but and on the general scale in the country, it's still not very accessible to people. And even if let's say it was accessible, it's still not empowering. The way it's taught to us is basically like a solid example is how we learned so much about the Spanish colonization period and then the Philippine-American War, which actually killed a lot more people, it was a lot more violent than the Spanish one, is like two pages worth, a week, like a few days worth of, of uh, discussion. And then it goes to how they helped us, they helped mm-hmm. us against the Sp- Spaniards, they helped us. And, and you really just see that quote coming alive that history is written by the victors. And, and that's why I feel like a very important part of activism is showing the other side of that, showing the voice of the oppressed, because that is the voice that's real. That is the voice that's less known, but it's also the one that's more vulnerable and also the one that's more powerful for us. Mm. Which one do you prioritize the most today? Uh, is it building connection with, the, with European countries in fighting climate change or with other Southeast Asian countries? which is we're facing the same problems, basically. Is, is it a cop-out if I say both again? <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. With, with the climate crisis, especially since it is such a global problem, I feel like we need to connect globally. Like, Southeast Asians need to connect our movements together so that we can, you know, build solidarity with one another, especially since we have very similar experiences. And then these experiences need to be known by those in Europe because yeah. honestly, like we do know that the youth climate movement, like I'm part of Fridays for Future. I love Fridays for Future, but we have to be honest that it started out and still kind of is, we're working on it, it as a very Eurocentric and white movement. Mm-hmm. And if you leave it like that, they will, maybe they'll, maybe some will, but a lot of people will fight for climate policies that's enough for them to survive. Mm-hmm. And like you're looking at the Green New Deal of the U.S. where, um, yes, it is great um, thanks to the youth climate movement there, but it's not enough. It's still built on the exploitation of the global south. It is still going to, you know, bring the global south to its death and destruction. And so the importance of having that connection between the global north and the global south 
is so crucial because then people there will realize that, okay, we can't just fight for what's enough for us. Mm. We also have to fight with the people in the global South who has been fighting for so long. And, and that connection will only be built in real if the connection to the global South, if the connection in Southeast Asian countries is strong also. Like, it's hard to connect with European countries if it's just like, let's say, the Philippines talking to them. But imagine a Southeast Asian or an Asian um reach as a region like really coming together and saying hey this is what's happening and you need to do this and there's also the part where asia is also one of the biggest fossil fuel financers and so aside from europe we also have to deal with that it's so funny because asia is is one of the most vulnerable regions and at the same time in the same continent we have the same we have people who are funding our prices even more and so there needs to be focus on that too and since the Southeast Asian movement, I would say, or the Asian movement isn't as connected yet. Um, I guess it's harder to connect, you know, compared to Europe because we're such a big continent. Yeah. Um, but because of that, it's, it's harder to put a push on Asian leaders because then there's no like one united voice demanding for change. Yeah. Because I feel also like it's easier for them to say like, oh, well, let's stop doing this. But then uh, palm oil plantations, mostly in Malaysia and Indonesia, and then, you know, all of these products have been produced in this country you have been you know dealing with the impact i i also feel like there's this uh what's the word like not misconception but misunderstanding or like oversimplified understanding because they see like oh indonesia and malaysia are um suffering so much from environmental issues but then they don't realize that the companies that are producing those environmental <laughs> issues are like Unilever which yes, exactly like yeah. like there was a study there was some statistic that just like got released about how the rivers in Bali the number one polluter of rivers in Bali is like Unilever here um, i think it's coke and nestle so they're all like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so it's like, you know, and all of these like other, other, um, what do you call it? Like companies that pollute, um, are from the global North. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and like, what I hate is they also ship their, tra- like they ship their literal trash out to our countries. Yeah. Um, but what, what was it, the country that like started shipping back the trash? There was, was a country. It, was, wasn't it China? Was it China that started shipping back the trash? They're like, oh, you know, we're not taking your trash anymore. Or Kenya. Was it China? And I think because China said that, they started looking for other Asian countries and that's why they came here. Uh, <sighs> yeah, it's it just, it's just, it's such a, you know, like they'll blame our countries for the plastic pollution, but then it's mm-hmm. produced by them, mm-hmm. and it's literally targeted to our com- to our countries to buy these um, sachet, like these single use sachet products, um, because there are more marginalized people here, and so they market it really specifically for our countries. Yeah, so mm-hmm. so I, I actually had this this um, discussion with Ruth the other day, where uh, like when I am in Indonesia and like. 
my friends like get like sachets and they like throw it out the car window or whatever. I get like mad at them and I'm like, why don't you recycle and blah, blah, blah. And then there's the sentiment that, Oh, like, why do you care about recycling? You're so Americanized or like you've been in the West for too long. So there's this idea that sustainability is like a Western concept. Right. I I guess like I'm, I'm wondering like, how that came about because I feel like it's actually been the indigenous lifestyle. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say like how I I do get that sentiment. Like people also think that sustainability is a Western thing. Um, Maybe because they're really trying to co-opt basically what we actually did before they colonized us. Like Mm -hmm. we were so much more sustainable before colonialism like one thing that really shows that um is how in tagalog there's no word for trash our word for so? trash is it, it, it's spanish like our word for trash is spanish wow. and so i feel like that kind of just shows you how before we were colonized there was no concept of waste it, it's yeah. all used somehow it's all recycled there's no surplus mm. to waste and and that mm. just shows like how we were sustainable and we could have, we could have stayed sustainable if, if, you know, we were able to economically um, develop also. Is there any like a yearly event that all the environmental activists throughout Southeast Asia come together and have like, you know, discussion? Is there anything? It's new. It just started last year. Asia Climate Rally. It's not just Southeast Asia though. It's Asia. But there are a lot of Southeast Asians there. Um, we just started in November uh, 2020. And we're hoping to make it yearly. In the midst um, of COVID? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we didn't come together like physically. It was all online. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, we we basically like held a region strike type of thing. So a lot of us were online. But some of us were able to do things physically. And it's really cool because it's just showing that the Asian climate movement is starting to grow and unite together. and really excited to see where it goes and it, it's so cool because um we got to see how indonesia's omnibus law is so similar to the philippines's terror law and we got to um tie up with some of the indonesian youth movements on that and like they tied up with us in the terror law and kind of just like hey we're both experiencing really bad things so we're gonna you know strike in solidarity with each other and it's really cool how do people in manila uh practice uh like green lifestyle sort of like sustainable it's lifestyle so like yeah. i i believe in the need for sustainable lifestyle but i find it difficult and what more for people who don't even know that there's a need for it um that's the thing like sustainability is such a it's it's something that that's usually left to the really like the people who are more well off mm. because mm. the brands that are organic are so much more expensive yeah the Living a zero waste lifestyle is almost impossible unless, like in the city, unless like you can have your own urban farm, but then you'll need land and you'll mm-hmm. need like big space. Um, being, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm transitioning to vegetarianism now and it's so difficult because a lot of your time will be spent in remaking meals because you can't buy outside anymore because of how, because Filipino dishes are really just meat to eat, like full of meat. Mm-hmm. And so if you're someone who's working a full-time job, if you're someone who's, who's 
working more than one job, you won't have that time to like make your own meals and make your own um, and make sure that you you live sustainable. Um, you live in a sustainable manner. And there's also the fact that even if you do recycle in the Philippines, our tra- our garbage uh, trucks will take the trash on different days. Like on this day only recyclables, on this day only biodegradables. But they all go get dumped in the same landfill. Yeah, yeah. So it's almost as if even if you do recycle, there, nothing happens. So it's really more about making sure that you don't consume as much if you have that privilege. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm also vegetarian, but I never looked at it that way. But I mean, it's yeah. I mean, it's refreshing. But yeah, I never, I, I never looked at it that way that people don't have time to to make uh, like a meal like for lunch. But I think you're right because yeah, like yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think in Indo, uh, well, no, I was going to say, like, in Indo, it's kind of hard to be vegetarian. But, it is, yeah. Um, but then, gado gado is. <laughs> but yeah, there are some dishes that you could just, like, order. And like salad vegetarian dishes. Yeah. I'm trying to think of a Filipino meal that really is just vegetables. I, the <laughs> most I can think of is steamed what is kamkong in English? Like spinach, steamed spinach. Oh, that's, that's yeah, we call it Oh, you guys have kamkong. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we just have steamed kamkong. That's the mm. most, that's the only, veg- like everything else, our vegetable meals will have shrimp in it or, mm. or meat. Or, you know, it's just it's super hard to transition. Um, there are a few vegetarian places that are opening up that are cheaper, which I love because then it's more accessible now. Mm. But then, you know, with the pandemic, I don't think, they survive, so right, right, right. Mm. One thing I find interesting when I research for this interview, because I feel most of the time uh, when we talk about climate change back home in Indonesia, most, uh, I mean, not mostly, but predominantly tourism playing part in it. And when I Google it in Philippines, they talk about the tourism sector being affected by climate change not climate change affected by tourism but what do you think in your perspective i feel like first the way our tourism is done here is not sustainable at all Mm. like um they will push out indigenous peoples from their lands uh fisher folk from their lands for the sake of that pretty pristine white beach view Mm. um they will encourage so many flights and so many people to go to certain places and really, really turn that place into a very commercialized place that you almost lose the culture and what could have been the beauty that, you know, when I, when I do travel, I prefer the not so touristy places because that's where you really get to understand the culture of the place. But they push that out in the Philippines. It's so sad because the only thing left of our culture in tourism is very like tokenized and it's like, oh, look at this indigenous person dressed in their clothes. And then you can try it on and take a picture with them. And it's just so degrading. And it's I so artificial. So mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's definitely being affected by the climate crisis. Um, it's weird because, yeah, they do see that. They only see it one way, not knowing that the way they're doing tourism is also contributing to the climate crisis. Yeah. Um, but yeah, definitely, like with the typhoons, with the rising sea levels, um, our tourism sector is going to be one of the most impacted and our government i think actually cares about that because a lot of our economy like is hinged upon the tourism sector mm-hmm. but then it's clearly not enough for them to do anything more because they're still allowing like all the 
um, forests to be deforested by the mining industries. They're still allowing like the reclamation projects that are ruining our corals and stuff like that. Mm. So do, do you feel that the government will um, take action and start doing something about the um, environmental issue in the Philippines because it's so connected to um, the economy of the Philippines? Because normally people say like, oh, you know, mm-hmm. environmental sustainability is the opposite of like profit making, right? And so they don't do anything about it. Um, I don't think... They're, they would change because of the tourism sector, just because the energy sector is also as strong. Um, and like, they're also the people in power. Um, but if anything, we can see how our president has started spewing out like all these climate justice rhetoric. And if you just listen to him, he sounds like he's doing a great job. Like in his speeches, he's like, global North countries should pay reparations to the countries in the global South where most impacted by the climate, basically the exact same thing that, that climate activists say. That's what he's saying, and it's kind of scary. But if you look at his actions, environmental defenders um, have been killed the most under his regime. Um, activists are being terrorized, and, and the, imperial, the projects that, that are actually destroying the environment are still being allowed to continue. So you can really see that it's really just lip service. Like, he's not really saying anything it's just to appease the people because i feel like they are afraid that especially with the climate movement getting stronger here and with the typhoons hitting us week after week after week like in this in november four typhoons hit us in the span of three weeks and then people were really saying hey look at this this is connected to the climate crisis because usually media doesn't connect it it'll be like oh here's another typhoon it's an act of god it's natural but because of the climate movement and the push there media has been starting to starting little by little to pick up that okay it is connected to the climate crisis okay it's not just something that's natural it is being caused by these projects that are destroying our environment and so you can see that people more and more people are starting to understand and see the importance of fighting for climate justice and I feel like that is what the government is afraid of and so they will start changing because of that. But what are the initiatives that the go- the government have been made like maybe in terms of 20 years to to handle the the typhoon season? That's the funny thing. We have so many climate policies. Mm-hmm. I think one of the most in the world, but the implementation is shit. Like there is <laughs> no, almost no implementation. And a lot of them is like a band-aid solution. So it's about, mm-hmm. okay, there was a typhoon. Let's buy, um, let's buy these rubber boats because we need it for evacuation. But actually, you can't use the rubber boats to evacuate people in the cities because the debris like makes the boat pop because it's rubber. Yeah, and yeah. so you can see that they're putting in so much effort because I guess they see the importance, but they're not consulting people who were actually involved, who were actually impacted. They're not consulting scientists. They're not consulting. They're not listening to the people who are saying that, hey, if you do want to do something, do this. Not rubber boats, but like um, an early warning system. There's a flood uh, if there's a storm surge coming. Mm. Um, this thing so that people are informed if something is happening. and. It's, it, it just all plays into each other. And like, it's so difficult with the Philippine government because they'll say really cool things, but then I have yet to see actual implementation of good things happening. Um, 
there is, however, like there, there's a senator who's like really cool and she's proposing a climate emergency bill. Um, the climate emergency bill's okay. I want to do more, but okay, I'll, I'll give it, <laughs> I'll give it to her. But its plan was to form another department or another agency. And we already have the climate change commission. We already have the disaster risk management office. And yeah, we're going to, they're going to add another. And, and I feel like instead of adding one more that you might mismanage again, maybe fix the ones you, you currently have. Um, there are other cool things like the Department of Energy around November last year, I think, said that they are planning to have a moratorium on any new coal-fired power plant. So we're super excited about that because that's something we've been pushing for and calling for for so long. But they have yet to release an actual official thing and like the implementing rules and regulations. So we're still like, yeah, you said this in a speech. You want to do it now? But they haven't done it yet. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But what about like storm, water pump, or like sewage systems? Because in Indonesia, it's been politicized all the time, especially in the capital city. And then, you know, flood still comes like two, three times a year. And then, you know. Definitely, that's something that needs to be talked about. That's something we as activists are also saying, like look into the sewage system. Like the floods shouldn't be this bad. But then they're like, oh, you know why it's flooding? Because you guys keep throwing plastic in the streets. And like, the thing is, they don't provide trash cans in the streets. Like, mm. it, it, it's not a culture of, it, it's not because Filipinos like, don't want to keep the environment clean. It's because the system isn't set up to be like that. Mm. Like, you will not see a trash can in the street. You will see it in the malls. You'll see it in, and you'll see in the malls, people will throw their trash in the trash cans because the trash cans are available. But mm. otherwise, people will just throw it in the streets and the thing is, it's not even about the plastic um, waste in the streets because when we had, we, do, we did have a single-use plastic ban and it did help a little bit, but the floods are still the same. Mm -hmm. So it's clearly not that. Um, they're not even, and they, our roads are always under construction for sewage systems, but they're always done really poorly. Um, a joke that my parents always say is that governments will ask for a budget for the water sewage system and then like, do it really cheaply so that they can save. Um, I don't know if it's true. I don't <laughs> want to say that it's true, but like it's something that it's, it's something that that's so common in the Philippines that it's a joke. Like it's a joke that's passed down from generation, and that that's scary to me that it, it's mm. so normalized in our culture. Yeah, talking about your parents, what do they think of you being an environmentalist activist? Aren't they afraid? I mean, with the number are, of activists being murdered, so... They're definitely afraid. Um, my mom is more supportive than my dad. Well, my dad says he's supportive, but I am a full-time activist now, and that doesn't really pay. Um, like, I do get some stuff from commissions from here and there um, when I'm writing things, but he's always like, cool activism, yeah, sure, but, but you have to be... You know that very... I don't know if it's an Asian thing or a Filipino thing, but you have to be successful. You have to mm. do this. You have to, you know, um, be like their definition of success as well. Yeah. Um, and I am privileged enough to not have to like provide for my mom. Um, my mom is more supportive. She understands that she sees the need of what I'm doing, but she is definitely afraid. Um, she gets anxiety attacks if I don't go home early. And so sometimes it's like, oh, you're being too strict to me. And she's like, no, it's because the police are there. And I'm like, yeah, okay, you're right. So say that I'll go home. Um, so like, 
I, I, we kind of just have this understanding that she let me do what I'm doing because she knows it's important, but I need to like keep her updated to make sure just so that she knows that I'm safe. Um, so like, I guess if you're based in the city and you grew up with this, um, education system that sort of built a narrative that, oh, the U S like came to save the Philippines, um, and, you know, brought so much good to build the Philippines. Um, where was like the turning point for you to like wake up and realize that, Hey, I need to see the real truth. I'm kind of lucky because my dad was an activist in his college days. So right, it's, funny then, it's funny. Like then why your dad like made that comment? <laughs> Same. <laughs> <He was>, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Like he said that yeah, he, I knew that he was an activist growing up, but like, now that I am an activist, he's like, Mitzi, when is this going to be, when is this phase going to be over? I was like that in college, but you have to grow up. Now. Like he sees it as a phase. Yeah. My mom defends me and she's like, uh, where else do you think her activism comes from than you? You were yeah. like this too. So stop, stop bothering her. Like, um, so yeah, I mean, that's why my dad is proud of me and like happy for me, but also at the same time, he's like, money, money, money. So, um, but yeah, like, so growing, I remember going into university. So in high school, I was a very sheltered kid who didn't care about anything except like my grades and like the TV, like the series I was watching and shit. Um, but then going into uni, um, I remember, I don't know why, I remember thinking, oh, because the university I was going to was known for people becoming activists. Like University of the Philippines is usually in place with a lot of activists. And then I, I was thinking, oh, I want to go to a rally when I get to college. Um, but it has to be something I care about, like the environment. Because I always cared about the environment. But then, you know, nothing really happened until um, 2017. I was running for student council. And we were able to, like, integrate with some of the indigenous people. They came to our university because they were being harassed and killed and militarized in their land. So they went to the university to seek refuge and to talk about their story, to tell people about what's happening. I got to talk to one of the leaders and he was telling us about all the atrocities that he was experiencing, how they were being displaced, how they were being killed, militarized and harassed. And after saying all that, I was already like on the verge of tears, like feeling, feeling everything. He, he chuckles and he goes, oh, you know, that's why we have no choice but to fight back. And then he just keeps talking. And that simplicity of how he said it, the way that he wasn't even trying to convince us, he was just like, this is what's happening to us. Logical conclusion, fight back. And my worldview just shattered. I just realized that I had this huge privilege of being able to quote unquote choose to be an activist. And he's right. We have no choice to fight back. I might not be the one directly experiencing what he's experiencing, but it's 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 kind of like there's this quote in Filipino, like once your eyes have been opened, it's almost a sin to close it again. Another thing that that really got to me there was so I was a student rights activist already at that point um, after that. And then um, in one of our education protests, the indigenous students, the youth indigenous people went and said, we came here to stand in solidarity with you. And I was like, wow, they're in solidarity with us. Mm. They have so much ex- like oppression and, and injustices happening to them. And for them to stand in solidarity with us, meant that they had to leave and flee their homes and leave their homeland. 
while us as students to stand in solidarity with them, we lose like what an hour or two. When when workers come in solidarity with us, they lose a day's worth of livelihood. Like it, I was just like slapped in the face of my with my privilege, just like Mitzi, enough. Join the people, join the fight, join the struggle, because look at them. They are supporting your struggle as a student, as a very privileged struggle. I mean, it is an important struggle, like the fight for free education. But I don't know, I, I couldn't help but compare that. They were coming in solidarity with us for our free education. We have to go in solidarity with them for their lives. When do you think people's concern about climate change uh, started to change in Philippines? When was the time that they were realized that climate change is real? In 2017, there was a March for Science here. It's a huge thing that started because of Trump in the U.S. saying that climate change isn't real. But I feel like even before that, around two, was it 2013, this huge typhoon called Typhoon Haiyan um, devastated one of the regions in the Philippines and killed over 6,000 people. And a big reason for that was because people didn't evacuate their homes because they didn't know what a storm surge meant when media said there was a storm surge coming. And from there, I feel like a lot of people realized the importance of talking about these terms, these scientific terms, and how they should be um, something that people understand. But it still wasn't exactly linked to the climate crisis that well. Um, the movement was pretty small back, back then, and there was no youth movement yet. Definitely when um, the youth climate movement across the world started growing and popping up, that's when more and more people started um, doing stuff here. So even before that, we were already campaigning for climate justice, although it wasn't called climate justice yet because we didn't really know that term. Yeah. Um, but, you know, a lot of people would just ignore us. But but when it became like an international thing and more and more people started talking about it, it's kind of sad that it had to be a Western international thing for people to start accepting it. But I mean, I'm not gonna, it's still a good thing that people are accepting it now. So yeah, and now like schools would come to us as climate activists and ask us to talk about the climate crisis and to talk about the role of the youth in the climate movement. And it's really cool how you're seeing that this global movement is, is helping each other, basically. Like if you're strong in one part of the country, in one part of the world, it'll get stronger in another part of the world. What is the number one problem of climate change in Philippines? in your perspective, the most important? I definitely think the biggest impact that we really feel are the typhoons. Mm -hmm. um, just because they're the ones that are so destructive and they're the ones that we're so not, like we're not capable of adapting. Um, I mean, there are other things like like the droughts getting worse and worse and it's getting worse for our farmers and, and like rising sea level, changing the fish pattern, the fish patterns of the fish for fisher folks, it's different. It's difficult for them. But since they're slower onsets of the climate crisis, you can you can kind of adjust to it, like adapt. But the typhoons just hitting week after week. There was a interview of someone from Catanduanes, which is a part of the Philippines, which is always like is usually the first um, the first island to get hit by the typhoon. Mm -hmm. She was crying because she was saying that. We just got hit by the typhoon and we just fixed our house up again. And now we have to pack up and evacuate again because there's another typhoon coming. And it's just mm. the devastation of people. And I hate how it's just so disempowering because people feel like it's a natural thing. People feel like it's an act of God, but it's not. It's, it's being caused by the elite. It's being caused by by people, by people mm. in power. And, and that's what we're trying to show people that 
you don't have to just accept this. We can demand for accountability. We can demand for change and just. Is there a talk about this in Japan? They have like constant earthquake, right? And they have this system, architectural yeah, system was just that thinking. would allow the houses to, yeah, you know, to to withstand all of that. that yeah. That's what I was thinking. And and when you mentioned the um the trash, like the fact that there are no trash bins outside, like in Japan, you also don't find trash bins in public. And yet, I guess like they've taught young kids to always like carry their trash with them and put it in their bag until you go home. So I guess, I don't know, like I get, I, I wonder when and if countries in Southeast Asia will get to that point. Because in Indonesia, like we also get, you know, tons of earthquakes, but our architecture and city planning can't withstand that. Same, like that is my same question. When are we going to start adapting and developing in the sense of the climate crisis? Like we already know that we need mangroves to protect us from storm surges, yet we keep cutting them down for a casino, for a dam, for an airport. Like, you know this is happening. Why isn't it, why, why aren't you planning with this in mind? And I feel like, at least in the Philippines, I'm not sure how it is in other Southeast Asian countries, um, there's not a lot of um, premium on scientists. Like, um, our scientists are, are contractual workers. Um, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with that mm-hmm. term. Like, our scientists are on a contract and so they don't have their benefits. They don't have their, their pay is delayed. Like scientists are free. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The government scientists, at least. If you're working for a private company, then you're, you're pretty okay. But, but that's so crazy because like there is almost no budget for scientific research. And that's why a lot of Filipino scientists end up going abroad. Mm. Um, scientists, science is so separate from the people here in the Philippines that it's almost, it almost kind of rationalized for me. Like that's why there's no city planning. That's why there's no um, development with the thought of what we actually need is happening because there is no consultation of our scientists because there is no, they're not given importance. They're just, you know, looked at as like smart people. I don't know. I don't know how the government views um, mm-hmm. scientists, but there are so many projects that like, let's say Department of Environmental and Natural Resources um, recently made one of the beach, one of the Manila, like Manila Bay, they turned into the white beach sand, like a white sand beach. Like they, they had like an artificial beach. They put in dolomite, which is like this thing, which is actually mm-hmm. bad yeah. for fish uh, to turn the beach into, yeah. to turn the bay into white sand. And, and the scientists were like, Hey, like the Marine Science Institute of one of the top universities said, Hey, how about planting mangroves instead? Cause that's also pretty and it'll yeah. help us. And they're like, they actually said, the, the, one of the officers actually said, stop criticizing us, you're hurting our feelings. Who cares about this your feelings? Is, <laughs> yeah, this, is, this is who's leading our country. And it's so funny because the typhoons came like a few weeks after that and washed out all the sand and all the money that they poured into it. Like they literally just flushed down so much money for, for nothing. Yeah, I, I feel like that sounds pretty similar to Indonesia because I I have friends and colleagues who are scientists and they went they had to go abroad to study proper like waste management and environmental engineering and like sustainable farming practices. But then they go back there and they try to implement it, but then they can't because, you know, there are such big powers that are working against them. And yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I- <laughs> 
And I mean, like all of that is politicized, I'm sure. But also like when you said the answer was like, don't hurt my feelings. <laughs> I feel like that's such a, like that's such an Indonesian <laughs> answer. Don't you think Ruth? It's like, oh, you shouldn't. I think like, it's I don't been know, popularized by like... Trump though, because he's so sensitive. <laughs> that's so true. That's so true. Then he tweets something like sad exclamation point. that's his um that's his thing but speaking of trump so like um the duterte administration has like gone a lot of attention right like international attention but i guess like i'm curious about like your opinion um and like Uh, for someone who is living in the Philippines, what is your opinion about that? Because I'm I'm sure like in the Philippines, there are people who like, it's mm. split, right? There are people who love him and people who hate him, I'm sure. I live in such an echo chamber of my own thoughts that I don't know anyone at this point who supports him, but I'm sure there are. Um, but like my Twitter and my Instagram and my Facebook, they're all just like, we don't like the therapist, but I'm sure it's not like that, which is so hard because like then you you... I, I always feel like, oh, wow, we're on the verge of, like, getting rid of him, finally. Because, like, all these tweets about getting rid of him and, and, like, protesting. And then I looked at my friend who isn't an activist and her Twitter is just, like, K-pop. And she's like, oh, never mind. Like, like um, I, I didn't actually know that that international media covers the Derda a lot. I, I'm not sure what they portray. But when I have talked to, like, a few um, activist friends from, from Singapore, where there are a lot of Filipino diaspora, Apparently, a lot of them really support Duterte because usually, like, OFWs really support Duterte because um, the way media portrays him is, like, this hero, like, mm. he's, he's our father, and he's doing so much for us. Mm. Like, his his literal nickname is Tatay Digong, which is, like, Father Duterte, like, Papa there, let's use Papa instead. Papa Duterte. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. I'd like think that a lot of Filipinos are against him, at least from what I'm seeing. Um, but there are like, it's so hard to gauge online also because there are, there is this thing in the Philippines where the government pays trolls to um, like support the, yeah. the, the comment on posts. And you can, mm. it's, it's so obvious because they will say like similar things in the same narrative all at the same time. So it's like, you're sure that something is going on behind it because mm. there was like this one time where they all started saying the same thing that, oh, he's, he's tired. He's 70 years old. What is he supposed to do against the typhoon? He can't stop the typhoon from coming here. And like, everyone started saying the same thing and it's just it's just you can see that the troll farm here in the philippines is really intense but i'd like to think that more and more people are getting angry about the government and we're coming to a time where we can get rid of him um hopefully uh, i guess that's up to the activists that's up to us to make sure that we really do see that this is happening and that this is something that we shouldn't accept Yeah, it's because I was talking to, you know, several Filipinos and they have this this view that, oh, it's it's good because he's getting rid of the of course, you know, it's like the, the narrative that they've built, like he gets rid of the drug lords or whatever. Mm, But of yeah. course, it's not like the real, mm, you know, like the actual yeah. people who are. Yeah. How do you how do young people in Philippines see his take on like war on drugs do you think it's too far because at he, least in the circles you know. I, talk, i i am in we definitely think that it's too far because 
he targets people like not the drug lords that are actually yeah. you know handling it but like the small people who are pushed to to, to the drug to have no choice um, yeah because yeah. because it, it's easy money yeah. it's money that you have and, yeah. and there have been so many cases where there's one really like intense case where um i guess the police didn't know that there was a security camera um he chased this student his name is kian de los santos uh he's 15 years old and he said and he he shot kian and kian's kian's last words were please don't kill me i have an exam tomorrow and it's just and and the narrative so before the footage came out the narrative that the police were saying is that um he fought back and that's why they had no choice but to shoot him and they classified it as under the drug war. Like at this point, media doesn't even cover the extrajudicial killings happening anymore. Like they just, it's become normal for us that people are dying literally every day. And it's so crazy. Uh, the last number that I heard was 33,000. And that was like maybe his first year of presidency or maybe his second. And it's his fourth now. And it's just, it's so intense. And you can see that it's become like, it's, it's so sad because people are desensitized. Like mm. with my non-activist friends, they'll joke because it's called Tokham. I don't know why it's called Tokham. I think it's because like they'll knock on your door and then they'll kill you like when you come when they come in. And then they'll be like, Oh, be careful. They they might they might Tokham you. It's, it's become a joke that people are dying. And it's it's so crazy how that's suddenly normalized in our culture in, in this wasn't here before the narrative. That wasn't normal. Like when people mm. died, it, it's news and now it's not and mm. when he said that he is willing to kill people that are dealing with drugs how do people in philippines perceive that because i i mean like i'm 28 years old and i think he's the first president that i've known to make this kind of you know admitting his intention to kill people on tv i mean we're not living in a cold war or like soviet unions you know the thing that you said earlier, like that made me think about how like the things that he say on TV, people, I think, see it as like, oh, my God, he's such a funny like they see it as a com- comedic thing, like such a comedic figure instead of like like they don't see it as a serious thing, because like right before we got on this interview, like I read that. Um, he just made a statement about how he wants to get his COVID vaccine on his butt. And so people see that as like, um, as like, oh my God, like a joke by this comedic guy. And I guess like they, they sort of like, don't look at the fact that he is not going to get his vaccine on camera. Like a lot of the the leaders of the world are doing, mm-hmm. um, and I don't know, I feel like it's it's kind of like the same kind of practice when it comes to like other crazy things that he says. Like people are just like, oh, ha ha, like what a, you know, they don't it's take his, it seriously. But presidential it's spokesperson, it is very shocking. Like his presidential spokesperson always says, oh, that's just a joke. That's just our president. Um, you know, he's not from Manila. He's from a different province. That's just their culture there, which isn't true. Um, he's he's built this image, like even when he was still running, that he curses. He's very down to earth. He's just like you. He makes misogynistic jokes and rape jokes. And oh like, my God, yeah. you know, I'm one with the boys. Like it's it's that type of imagery. Mm. And, then, and then he somehow through also the troll farms because then people are like of course 
you want to kill the drug people because they're the ones who are raping our, our, our children, our daughters, our sisters. They're the ones who are doing this, doing that. And so he's demonized these poor people to the point that they're not even people. Mm. And it, it's so scary how effective, like how extremely effective um, they are at using social media and using like things to distract people. Like there was a time that there was this big issue coming up and suddenly one of his like cronies um, made this song about federalism and like they made it like they made a very sexual and crude song about federalism. And and suddenly everyone's attention went there and or, or like one of them started saying that this volcano was actually in a different province. And so everyone's attention went there. Like they're so good at directing, like diverting your attention that sometimes when something's really big, you have to look at like, okay, what's happening in the background? Maybe they're hiding something. <laughs> um, this is a question like rewind to something that you said earlier about how like Duterte was the first of his kind to be like this. Like, but you guys had Marcos, right? So like, is it surprising? Because like Marcos predisposed like what do you what's the word like he came before Duterte what we have um, a chance here where it's like Marcos Duterte there's no difference between you two both of you are dictators fascists and puppies that's that's strange we call them puppies because like tuta or puppy is like you follow whatever your master says mm-hmm. so we were, we're saying that these Marcos and Duterte mm-hmm. both just follow whatever US or, mm-hmm. or Duterte, US and China say mm-hmm. um Duterte is the first, I don't, I wouldn't say that he's extremely different from other previous presidents. Like they have very similar policies. Like all of them have had a version of the terror law. All of them have had some kind of version of suppressing the activist movement. But Duterte is one of the first, I think, to really, really capitalize on the online troll farm. I guess Marcus would have done that if Facebook existed at that time. Um, but Duterte is... In recent years, since since Global Witness, the, the UK-based NGO watchdog started counting. Uh, so that was before um, they weren't counting yet when Marcos was our president. But since he has, environmental defenders have been killed the most under his regime in recent years. I think he started counting around 2004, 2005 or something. Um, so definitely like. Marcos and even the person after him, Oriakino, who was lauded in Times News as the queen of democracy, she also killed like so many activists and so many unionists. And it's the same thing happening with Duterte. And it, it's the same thing that will probably happen with the next president because they're all the same. They're all the people in power. They're all the oligarchs. They're all the, the landlords. They're all the landed elite. So you know that as long as the same type of people are the ones in power as long as it's still the rich and the elite that are in power. Fascism will be there. It will look different. Some of it will look friendlier, but it's going to be the same. I, I would say the same as Obama and Trump and Biden. All of them are still killing people. It's just different. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That's very true. Like all of them are like just two sides mm-hmm. of the same coin of imperialism and neo-colonialism. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. Tell me about your activities with your organization lately or what, uh, what's your plan for the future? Um, so before the pandemic, a lot of what YACAP did, Youth Advocates for Climate Action Philippines, basically the Fridays for Future of the Philippines, was going to schools, knocking on doors and like asking the professors to give us like five minutes of your time to talk about the climate crisis and to invite um, students to talk about it more after class. 
Um, and also like bringing students to farmers and fisher folk and really learning from the people who are seeing and experiencing the climate crisis and the environmental degrade, degradation firsthand. But now with the pandemic, um, a lot of that turned into digital activism, which is difficult because you only reach people who have access to the internet and they're not necessarily the people who need to know the most about the climate crisis. Um, and, and so there is that, but you know, we're, we're doing what we can with the pandemic. Um, when the typhoons happened, a lot of what we did was raising awareness about the crisis, um, connecting it when we had our relief operations, which we like was really successful, thankfully. Um, we also talked to the communities and told them about, like, as, after asking them what they experienced, we told them that this thing that you're experiencing, it's not normal. It's not natural. It is being caused by these um, people in power. And, and it's so refreshing to see how empowered they were to think that, oh, there is something that we can do there. We can push back. And that's, that's such a beautiful thing. Um, in the future, this coming year, we're looking to like get really um, more specific on what our demands are. So a lot of what we did the past year and the past two years that we were here was raising awareness and demanding accountability. And now we're going to move into actually demanding for specific demands because enough people already know about climate change and kind of know about climate justice. So now we can start talking about more specific things um, without it completely going over people's heads. So. We are going to be asking for things like a moratorium on, well, we already have the moratorium on coal-fired power, coal fired power plants, but like for it to become official, um, a moratorium on um, any new mining operations that will also destroy the environment and things like that. We're going to get like really specific and really target um, banks that are funding the fossil fuel industries here. We're going to target um, companies that are... You can hear my dog. I'm sorry. <laughs> We're going to target companies that are destroying the environment. And, and hopefully if the pandemic gets better, we don't really know with the vaccines yet. So what are the what are your top demands for this coming year? Um, so one is to have that moratorium on any new coal-fired power plants be official and for us to actually see it um, for the Philippines to stop um, environmentally destructive projects and, and when Duterte says that we should ask reparations from the global north and demand for climate justice, he has to recognize that that also means stopping the reclamation projects, stopping the mega dams that will destroy our forests and make us more vulnerable to the climate crisis. And also to have climate education that is actually Philippinized and made for us because those few people who do have access to climate education, it's usually very Western and foreign and, and technical. It's not connecting what the science of the climate crisis is with what we're already experiencing. And it's not empowering at all. And that's exactly what we need. We need people to be empowered by what they're learning so that they can turn knowledge into action. Um, and also to like, for the Philippine government to prioritize the Filipinos, prioritize not the profit of the elite few, not to prioritize the profit of these multinational companies, but to prioritize the people of our country. So should we, I know we're running out of time. Should we ask our closing questions? Yeah. So we, we have two closing questions. Um, the first is what are the biggest misconceptions about the Philippines that needs to be dismantled? Um, I'm not sure how true this is, if it actually is a misconception, but apparently like a lot of people in the U.S. think that we live in like trees and, and that, is that true? Uh, I don't know. Never heard of it before. 
No, no. like I, I know what you mean, because like, like if, if I go to like or like I, I shouldn't say where, but like the middle of nowhere in the U.S., <laughs> Um, if, um, if like I go to somewhere in the middle of the U S it's like, they're probably going to be like, Oh, do you live in huts <laughs> yeah. or do you live in real houses? Like things yeah. like that. Yeah. But I guess like, cause I believe like sometimes Filipinos don't want to be called. It's like, there's, there's a debate on whether Filipinos want to be called Asians or Hispanic or oh Pacific Islander. And so I think there's like also a confusion like if you're not familiar with the Philippines or if you're not Filipino, it's Where like are outsiders. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Outsiders like are like like that's something that's I will tell you. I mean, no offense to the Filipino diaspora, but there is no discussion of that here. We all think we're Asian. That that whole Pacific Islander thing, that's a non not those are for people who what are Hispanic. Here. No, not at all. Definitely not. That's not even but like Pacific Islanders are Asian. Like some people are like, oh maybe, but really Asian. But but his no definitely not like we were colonized by Spain but no not really <laughs> is there still is there still a um like what do you call that sort of like inferiority complex that puts Spain on like oh they were what's the word like, like um, the, the way like kind of like Indonesians view like white people or like Dutch oh yeah men mm-hmm. will come yeah. and they're broke as fuck and they <laughs> get all the women you know it's because they're white um. <laughs> yeah that kind of that kind of it is that. like that but not because they're like if you're white people will think you're american and they'll think that you're great it's not with spain but we have it with america which is curious because like we had 300 years in spain but the u.s until now still has you know neocolonialism they still have that influence on our politics on our economics and on our culture i mean it's it's so clear when yeah our constitution is in English. Like, I feel like even that alone already says so much. Like, mm. how are people, how are Filipinos supposed to understand our constitution when it's in English and not in our own language? And, and like, there's so much separated from people. And, and I guess another misconception, like, that people have of Filipinos is that, like, when you hear the Philippines, and I ask other people in other countries about the Philippines, the first thing they'll say is, like, oh, you guys have, like, really pretty Miss Universes. Oh, my God. <laughs> what the and, hell? like, you all sing. And it's just, like, please don't stereotype us like this. And, and they'll say that, like, oh, you guys are, like, really hospitable and you're really um, nice and you're usually caregivers, which I absolutely hate because mm-hmm. the reason why a lot of us are pushed to become OFWs and to become caregivers is because of the lack of opportunities here in the Philippines and, and because of how difficult life here is in the Philippines. And a lot of times we're also like reduced to anecdotes and to sad stories and statistics like, oh, another typhoon has hit the Philippines. Look at them as they sit on a rooftop with the flood, but they're still waving and smiling at the camera. The resilience of the Filipino people is beautiful. And that's that's not who we are. We're not accepting that this is happening. Yeah. We are fighting yeah. back and we're not just sad stories. Oh, wow. That's that's like a, another thing too. Like in the US, people have this idea that Filipino immigrants become nurses or caregivers Mm. um they associate that with filipinos but Mm. yeah yeah (laughs) so many misconceptions um and i guess the second question is what's your favorite filipino food oh my god okay um sinigang before you before you become become yeah before i became vegetarian (laughs) um before i was vegetarian it's sinigang which is like this sour soup I don't know the English word for sambalo. 
Um, it's like this. Let me try to search it. <laughs> But what is what is it made out of? Tamarind. Tamarind. Okay, it's there. Uh, tamarind. Okay. Uh, <laughs> oh wait, it's it's tamarind mm-hmm. soup. We oh have my God, yeah, yeah, you're yeah. awesome. Yeah. It's made oh of tamarind, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, they probably taste similar. To that. And then they're like, probably. there's kangkong and there's tomatoes and there's usually either fish or pork or shrimp. But now that I'm vegetarian, I'm I'm trying to learn what I can substitute the meat with. I don't know yet. I haven't tried. Um, now that I'm vegetarian, it it'll be like I don't know the English words of these. Okay, hold on. Um, ginataang kalabasa. Kalabasa is squash, and ginata is coconut milk. Okay, so it's green beans, squash, and coconut milk, and it's really good. And there's sometimes also eggplant. Honestly, that's not a vegetarian dish either, but it's easy enough because it's just removing the pork bits and everything else is vegetables. So yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I told you when I said I had a lot of dogs. I mean, like, how ten. many dogs you have? Ten. Oh wow! <laughs> is having ten dogs is environmentally friendly? <laughs> Probably not. <honestly. laughs> but, but we didn't buy them; they all just procreated. <laughs> um. <laughs> we had a fun chat with Mitzi, and as always, we encourage you to dig deeper. The youth climate justice movement in the global south is an important one to pay attention to. If you're curious about Yakap or want to support their programs, check out yakap.org. Y a c a p dot org. If you would like to keep up with the work that she does with Yakap and beyond, Mitzi is on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at Mitzi Jonel. We want to thank Mitzi again for making the time to talk to us in the midst of her busy schedule. Thanks for listening, and until our next feast, this is Alexandra, and this is Ruth.